I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to this special edition of Hidden Legal Figures. What America is experiencing right now, in the wake of the gruesome killings of three of its African-American citizens, has been, to say the least, nothing more than astonishing. Many voices are being raised about how we got to this point and what needs to be done to achieve the lasting justice this moment has created. No doubt this conversation will continue in the court of public opinion, but it will speak loudest in courtrooms throughout our judicial system. And lawyers will be front and center of that legal conversation. We're joined by three lawyers, each of whom use their voice and their vocation in the pursuit of a just society. Mawali M. Davis for the Davis Bozeman Law Firm in Decatur, Georgia. Francis Johnson from Statesboro, who's also the former head of the Georgia chapter of the NAACP, and R. Gary Spencer from Atlanta take part in this special conversation we call Brothers in Law. Uh, the issue is systemic racism brought to us, brought to our attention by the recent spate of police shootings. The most horrific and gruesome was the public slaughtering of Mr. George Floyd. And there are some who are on the judicial front lines of these issues. Their law practices, their calling, their vocation puts them front and center, smack dab in the middle of these issues on a daily basis. And we're here talking with them on this special segment of Hidden Legal Figures that we call Brothers in Law. And they're here to share with us their insight, their information, their wisdom, and their set, their feelings of where we are and where we can go to get beyond and through this present madness. Gentlemen, thank you so much, brothers. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us on, on this special edition of Hidden Legal Figures. Thank you, Derek. Thanks for all you're doing, Derek. Glad to no, be here. Thank you. Francis, uh, as I've told listeners, we introduced listeners, you are the former head of the Georgia NAACP. Uh, tell us a little bit about the about this moment that we're in from a from a contextual standpoint. It seems that everybody is having their awareness raised about where we are at this particular moment as, th as though these were some brand new issues, brand new episodes of, a, of an entirely brand new TV series. But this seems to be like a rerun. And so kind of tell us where, we, where we've been and, and, and how we got here. Absolutely. If it's a rerun, it's a terrible one. Uh, it is a, um, a narrative that runs all the way back through the gamut of this country's history uh, back to 1619 uh, when, when black people, Africans, are brought here uh, as slaves. Now, that's not the first uh, occasion of black people on this continent and the indigenous people who lived before them, but to the extent that white supremacy would control their bodies, their lives, and profit from it, the use of force, state sanction, against Native people, the Creek, the Shoal, the uh, Cherokee in Georgia, uh, who will be extinct in less than 100 years after James Overstall comes into Georgia, and, and Black people held in involuntary servitude, slavery, chattel slavery. Uh, that is 
the use of violence that is state sanctioned is as old as Georgia history, old as old as the United States history. But the focal point of this coming uh, to head with the, uh, the, the lynching of Ahmaud Aubrey, by a former police officer and his son uh, and William Rohde uh, down in Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, and then before we could even get to the bottom of what that uh, cover-up was, you have the tragic killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the list goes on and on. Uh, and it really uh, helped to cement uh, in the minds of people uh, that this, this was just an untenable condition. I would remind folks that 1,028 people were killed uh, by police last year. That's more than the next 10 industrial countries put together times five. Uh, no other country has this problem. It's uniquely American, uh, and uh, it is something that uh, we have got to uh, resolve, and we can't do that until we get to the root of it, which is white supremacy. Of course, the NAACP has fought against that. Uh, since, its, since its birth uh, more than 111 years ago. So looking forward to the discussion, but that discussion has to be centered in anti-Blackness, has to be centered in white supremacy and rooting up the systems that maintain it socially, economically, politically, and legally. That conversation, as you said, has to be rooted in anti-Blackness. Molly, your practice, um, when, when you walk into the courtroom, do you see feel, experience this anti-Blackness that Francis just talked about? I think we all experience anti-Blackness wherever we move in these yet-to-be United States of America. I mean, this is a reality that we are dealing with, that our children are dealing with in schools, that we deal with as we shop, as we arrive, as we engage law enforcement. And so when we enter the courtroom, courtroom is only a microcosm of the greater society, which is rooted um, in white supremacy. And so we're having to deal with this on a, on a daily, regular basis as we represent clients, whether they are clients who've been charged with crimes or clients who have been injured. Um, our pain is even um, valued less than others our, because our lives are. And so we're fighting constantly to get the equal value for what um, black folk experience in America and in Georgia, um, something as simple as a car accident, you know, um, depending on your, your area code, depending on your name, um, all of that impacts how your case is evaluated, how your life, your injury, your experience is evaluated. So uh, this is an ongoing issue. It's one that um, thankfully, um, you know, attorneys like Brother Francis and Gary, Tiffany Williams, Roberts, Marissa Dotson. Um, we have a long list of lawyers right now that are engaged, I mean, literally in the middle of a, of a new uh, human rights struggle. New human That's a continuation of, of, of what we've seen through Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, um, the, new, the Black Panther Party, um, New African Independence Movement. All of this is converging in this moment. And it's, it's an incredible moment. And I just hope people understand how historic it is that we're living in right now. Gary, you represent a couple of young 
African-American students who attend two of the most storied institutions of higher learning in American history, Morehouse College and Spelman College. Uh, we've seen the video of the car window being smashed in by a law enforcement officer, tasing a young woman, pulling her out of the car. My daughter is 19 years old, college student down in Valdosta. When I see that video, couldn't help but think that this could be my child. Mm. And my child is down there and I can't get to her and someone who she is supposed to think would be looking out for her interest is smashing in her window. When you get that kind of phone call, what goes through your mind? Well, you know, all of us on this call have children, right? Um, I'm the old guy, so my, 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 my youngin' is, is 30. But I remember, I remember and think about these things all the time, right? I remember how sad it was when he was like 16 uh, and needed a car to drive to his internship. Um, the whole talk, right? Just that whole discussion about, look, this is what happened. Keep your hands up on, on the wheel. Um, if you have somebody in the car with you, because, you know, he had some white friends from school and I didn't want him to get twisted about how sometimes they respond to police and don't get in trouble. Um, and so, so I, I'm continuously reminded of that. And I'm, and I'm just thankful that we have video because here, cause here's the thing, black lives still don't matter if we don't have a recording, right? I mean, if those kids didn't have a recording of all that, um, you know, they would have been blamed for it. Um, and it also, you know, and one of the other issues that I think about is, you know, those are black police officers, mm -hmm. right? So, and, you know, so we have to, so that talks about what the nature of the police force is, right? I mean, here these guys were just hepped up uh, and it didn't matter that there were kids of color in the car. That, that, that part didn't matter because they were so in their element. Um, I also think about, you know, None of these cases would matter if there weren't video, right? Mm. If there weren't videos, you know, the, you know, they were ready to lie on George Floyd, right? They were ready to say he resisted arrest until someone showed a video. Um, Ahmaud Arbery, um, you know, ignoring the fact it took three months to, one to three months to arrest somebody. If there wasn't a video, that narrative would have stuck and it would have been, it had been done. It was sticking. That's it, right. It, it, it was 73 days. <laughs> 73 days. And so, you know, white supremacists, white supremacy is just so deeply rooted. I mean, that prosecutor, Jackie Johnson, George Barnhill, George Barnhill took a day to come to a, a whole conclusion mm. about there was nothing wrong. Uh, I mean, he took a day. And, you know, I think about how, you know, it's, we have to have progressive people on the bench too, because this system, if, if I'm to the point in my life where having a black judge is not the end all be all, mm. right? Because the system grinds us up. And so by the time you get there, you feel like, well, I have to show I'm not really a black judge, right? And so that call, those, those kids, you know, it, 
you know, again, these these are our quote unquote best and brightest, right? They're they're they they've been blessed to have that educational opportunity. They're both doing we're doing well in school, and that could happen to them. And they they weren't even there to protest, right? They weren't they weren't even part of the protest. They're trying to get through traffic, and so it's just the system is troubling. You know, I uh, I, I try to be informed by my faith. So I try to have an optimism that, you know, things will get better. I think about, you know, my, uh, I think I was telling someone my fourth great grandfather was enslaved. Uh, so I think about, okay, well, whatever he had to go through wasn't this. And so I, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I think about this time where even, even black middle-class folk some of them have waken up. I mean, I was on a call the other night and I heard a group of folks saying, yeah, I mean, if it burns down, you know, I don't want to, but I'm not going to be moved. And I was just like, mm. really? <laughs> These are black folks in Atlanta. Correct. Correct. Yeah, that's, that's a special breed. Right. They, right. They, but, they're here to the black Mecca theory. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that whole thing. But I mean, I, I mean, I just feel like so many people now have been moved in a way that has not happened lately. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of us are feeling these calls about what can I do? You know, I feel so bad. What can I do? Um, my, my new job is sending them information, telling them to go do it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not going to do it for you. Here's some information. You go do it. So but, but what, what, what is it that has moved us now? I mean, Again, you talk about the video. It's not like we didn't see the video with Rodney King. Right. It's not like we did not see the video with Philander Castle. It's not like we did not see the video with Eric Garner. It's not like we have not seen these videos before. We haven't. It's, what is it that's moving us in this particular moment where you have, as Francis just called, that special breed in Atlanta? Uh, making its comments and people calling you asking, what can I do? Wh wh why now? What, what's, the, what's so different about what we are seeing now from what we have seen before? I think it's not a special moment. It's a special moment in the sense that all this moment is a culmination, isn't it, of all those other moments, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that last straw that breaks the camel's back is, is on top of all these other straws. Uh, so I think that's certainly part of it. Like, what what else can we do? You know, Philando Castro was like, look, I'm trying to tell you, officer, I have a gun. And he still gets shot and killed. And so at some point, and I guess we're at that point right now where people are just like, it's, it's just too much. It's just too much. We, we're definitely at a tipping point, right? And, and we have tipped. And here's the thing that's interesting, and, and I'm, I'm – challenged at times when I, you know, we've been in this movement for a long time, over, you know, 25 years. So we have, you know, comrades who are, are battle-worn and tired, and every time we think that the momentum is going our way, then our people die back down and, and become not docile, but they become rather apathetic again, and they are not, they don't remain engaged, right? And so what we're saying is that this is different because of the cumulative effect of white supremacy. And it has hit us in a way that our people are saying, nah, we're not going back in. I mean, literally, I was walking down the street to come into the building today, two brothers just 
ordinary brothers walking down the street, they recognize me, say, hey, what's up, bro? How you doing? Do-do-do. And so, you know, we do the brother exchange. And then, then I say, man, y'all stay out here. And, man, they stop, right? And they turn and they say, we ain't going nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, and I think brothers and sisters are saying, if, if this ain't it, we'll <laughs> but we, we're trying to make this it, you know? Right. So, it. so there's, there's a, there's a, a, a context too. I think the normal uh, opiates, if you will, that will dull the senses and lure people back into whatever normalcy was um, are, are not available because of the shared predicament everyone is in under COVID. So thank God that there's no organized sports uh, to distract people uh, and lure them away from being attentive to this. Thank God, as a pastor of two churches, that there are no churches uh, in, in large part engaged in the conciliatory work that churches often engage in with uh, white supremacy uh, whether it is through um, this sort of anti-blackness that comes out of white churches, which says that you're responsible for your own death, um, even though our hands are around your neck, the nooses around your neck, our, our knees on your neck, or whether it is anti-blackness that comes in blackface through black churches that says our role is to forgive without any repentance uh, and wait for justice in the hereafter. So the churches are turned out. Uh, and then you have 125,000 bodies stacked up in the public square after people have been quarantined at home uh, largely for two months, um, scared of an a invisible virus that could attack randomly um, and, and without cause, which is literally the experience of Black people for 401 years. And so this has, has I think, uh, created a climate with a president that has had his entire administration bookended with protests. Remember, we inaugurated this president with the largest protest that the world had ever seen in the Women's March. And so we've had three and a half years of protest of his demagoguery and uh, resistance to his um, just inability uh, to, to, to lead. And I think there is a general agreement uh, that this experiment, the notion that anybody can be president is, is flawed and failed. And across the board, I know uh, these protests look different for me because I think of all of those things I just said, that these are the most diverse protests I've ever witnessed. Um, as a matter of fact, in some of these protests, uh, uh, so-called white Americans are outnumbering black folks. Uh, and, and, and the group that is in the street was, were those ones we thought were least aware, our younger generation. Uh, and they're turning around and looking and saying, we're not accepting your compromises. We're not accepting uh, debate. We won't accept your, your legislative proposals and deals we will have our freedom and we'll have it now. Mm. You use an interesting phrase, the normal opiates that would cause people to otherwise retreat to their corners of neutrality. You talk about the complicity of the church 
Gary, you talk about the coziness of the black middle class. Mm. Um, I knew you guys wouldn't disappoint. Let's 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 go there. Are there some what, what do we what do we what do you actually see in terms of this moment? How that hurdle can be overcome? How how to deal with those complicit forces? I've often said that not everybody on everybody on the auction block did not want to be sold, but there were some folks who didn't mind doing the selling. Mm. How do you deal with those who don't mind doing some selling, even though they look just like you? I say get them out the way. We have we have to unfortunately we have to tell folks who they are too, right? I mean. Um, we have to get them out the way because this is a time like nowhere that I've seen in my lifetime. And, um, but you're right. There, there are certainly a number of folks who see this as an opportunity for themselves. Uh, and it's, and it's sad, but it's all, it's always happened. It's not like it's new. Right. So, um, I think that we have to just tell you, I think we have to tell them and, and push them out of the way that that's, I think there's no time to be polite. Um, not, not now. Not now. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, I think we have to um, make sure that we remind ourselves what holds white supremacy in place. And that is that political expediency. And so if you want to look for those who are in that in that uh, dangerous conspiracy with it, look for those uh, in political circles who are right now saying to protesters, "Okay, you've done enough. Let's negotiate. Let's negotiate the peace. Here are some proposals that can stem and cut back the worst abuses of police brutality, even though this is just the spear in. You got to look at the economic um, incentives that are tied to white supremacy. So you got to look in those spaces, uh, banks, financial institutions, our lending arrangements, and there'll always be folks hanging around there for a dangerous, uh, dangerous agreement with white supremacy that will benefit them. I was on a call of... Uh, of, of older, middle-aged, and younger activists trying to figure out how we can have synergy across the board. And to a T, all of the older activists wanted to talk about sitting down with the business community. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and, and you know, it was just striking. So look at those who are hanging around those economic incentives, the social maintenance of it all, the respectability, politics of this moment have to be thrown out of the window. Uh, and folks are saying, well, uh, what what have protests done? Protests have done a lot. Uh, protests uh, got Juneteenth declared the state holiday of Virginia and of uh, Pennsylvania, hotbeds of the Ku Klux Klan. Protests took down the Confederate monument over state le- legislative action to give it more protection than any of us have on this call in Decatur Square last night. Protests did that. And protests got the arrest of the murderers of Ahmaud Aubrey, uh, after two district attorneys going into the third said that there was nothing they could do, they just had to wait. It brought the arrest of those murderers for that brother. And it, it is the protest that had ultimately given us this space that we have to push through as organizers, as lawyers, uh, to, 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 to engage in a third reconstruction of this country. And so, uh, to folks who, who say that uh, what the protest done, these are folks whose shoes are smooth because they haven't done any. Uh, and so uh, this is a moment to lean in where every voice counts and in whatever sphere of influence that you have, 
if you're not channeling Black Lives Matter through making sure that the table is either more inclusive or if the table is so corrupt, you just simply uh, destroy them. I almost cussed, but I'm going to be good. <laughs> flip it over and start again. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing enough. It's the fact that folks are in the street. The unpredictable has always been, what will black folks do? Will we snap? The, 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 the possibility of black people snapping is the only thing that gets us justice. That's it. Whether you are the person who's about to snap in the grocery store because somebody is watching you aisle by aisle and you turn and give them that look like, if you follow me one more aisle, I'm going to mess around and show my blackness to your behind. Mm. What the Right. <laughs> We're on verge. They don't know what's next. I got a call the other day. Folk are like, man, are they plotting to burn down the police station? I said, brother, I don't know. But what I'll tell you is y'all got to make some changes immediately, immediately, because it has to be changes that people really get in their spirit and they know that, okay, this is different. They're not going for, for just, you know, all right, we're going to tinker around the edges of white supremacy, mm. but part of America, white supremacy remains intact. No, that's a cancer. You cut it out. You do chemo, radi radiation, everything to kill that malignant cell in the body of the world because the system of white supremacy is worldwide. So this is a moment that we got to all lean in. And yes, it's a class struggle. It is definitely a class struggle. And we have to just know that ultimately we're going to win um, because we're on the right side of history. Oh, and yeah. those are struggling, those that are struggling to accept that victory is certain, right? We, in the movement, they say, aludua continua. That's only a part of it. Right, a little while continua is the struggle continues, but then there's the part like Victoria Easterta, victory is victory. <laughs> We're on the right side of history, and, 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 and here's the thing, and I'm 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 gonna have to jump off the. We've been right all the time. Mm. We have been right all the time, all the time. For those of us who have called for reparations, we were right. For those yeah. of us all for liberation and self-determination, we were right. We only have been listening to the voices of our ancestors and we've been speaking that for years. There's the who passed away saying, you know, on their dying breaths, the very same issues that would 10 years ago, folk wouldn't even use the term white supremacy. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. You had to use it. Right. <laughs> they, they, no, they wouldn't use that term. So we have now changed because part of it is if you're going to change a system, you have to change the vocabulary. And the vocabulary in the movement is changed. Talking about white supremacy. We're talking about institutional racism. We're talking about reparation. We're talking about defunding police, abolishing policing. All of those things are alive and well. And everything, as Brother Francis has said, all options are on the table. And that's because the people have remained in the street and COVID and all the things that are happening. It is a perfect storm for us to have a transformative moment for us to be able to look back 20 years from now and say, yeah, yeah, we check and, yeah. and living freer, more self-determining lives with our, our children, not 
get that talk that Russ Spencer talked about. Mm. Tired of giving our children. Watch how you talk. Watch how you move. Because these people have at their disposal your life in their hands without percussions whatsoever. They'll take and walk away and go get Burger King. This third reconstruction that you mentioned, Francis, part of how it will be experienced, part of how it will be constructed, will depend upon some of the things that happen inside courtrooms around these issues that we're seeing. Sure. We saw the video of Rodney King receiving 56 nightstick warnings. And then we saw coming out of the courtroom a decision that the officers were not responsible. Sure. We got the video inside the courtroom for Mr. Floyd. We got the video inside the courtroom for Mr. Arbery. We got the video inside the courtroom of Rayshard Taylor. We know how that evidence is playing itself out in the court of public opinion, but in terms of our evidentiary rules that, we go, that we've learned in law school and that you guys wield with such a credibility and, and craft, Gary, when the, when the video gets inside the courtroom, and from everything you guys have been saying, right now what's also at issue and also on trial is, the, is this actual system of and history of the infantile notion of the supremacy of whiteness. How do you use the video for evidence to say that the officers are guilty and they are guilty because of this, of this, this notion of, of white supremacy because that's what's on trial as well? Well, you know, every case is different, but certainly with the George Floyd case, I mean, you have a police officer just standing there looking at police, watching people watch him, right? With no need, I mean, that is the most just egregious, um, you know, as a, in terms of, as some sort of um, academic exercise, I have said to myself, well, what are you going to say in the, you know, what are you going to say in defense of that? You know, are you going to say it was an accident that his knees on his neck? Are you know, what are you going to say? And I don't, I don't, I don't know what they're going to say, but, you know, you, you pray that the people who judge that case will be like, look, there's just no re there's no reason for that. Um, I have not watched all the videos in the Rayshard Brooks case, but my understanding is that after the shooting, their statement like we got him and uh, kicking him or something like that. And if that's the case, I thought that's a little more than self-defense. The guy shot in the back twice. So, you know, you, you hope that the advocates for the state will be up to the task. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I certainly wish that Mr. Howard had allowed the GBI to finish its investigation um, because it, it looks, it, cause, because there's plenty of evidence now that people are gonna say, well, this is political. These are good cops, you know. Uh, if they had allowed the investigation, the GBI would have said nothing happened. I mean, I mean you know, so there, there's been a creation of some extra problems that didn't need to happen. But, you know, you hope that the video stands for itself, quite frankly. I mean, you hope that people, uh, you, that you won't go for the, the notion that don't believe 
what you're looking at. Believe what I'm telling you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, but again, you know, you're right. But I, I think 1992 was a different time though. Um, I think people got into the streets rightful, righteously, but it, it, it went back to what it used to be after a while. Uh, but I just don't see that now. I, I think it's just been too much. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so Gary raises a point that, um, that we have to remember when you talk about white supremacy, a part of its persistence is that as barriers are knocked down in one area, they're simply erected in other areas. When you look at, when you look at the bar, for example, um, so long as blacks were uh, routinely excluded from participation in professions like uh, the, the law, uh, th there was no bar exam. That bar exam was erected as a barrier to stop uh, black uh, people from ascending into the, to the ranks of the profession. And you can expect more and more barriers to be erected. Um, and we have had to fight through those barriers as they've been erected. The same goes for uh, what is necessary uh, to show excessive force through the uh, protocols of police manuals um, and what is necessary to, to, to prove um, an unjustified killing in a courtroom. And so these barriers uh, go back to policy and policymakers, which have determined that in order to enforce the rule of white supremacy, that is the status quo, that we will arm and equip police officers to do just that. And so while police officers are bearing the brunt of the scrutiny in this day, that all tracks back to policymakers. And that all tracks back to a maintenance of the status quo, which, um, you know, you have to agree is rooted in white supremacy. And so um, that's the part that we've got to realize is that um, the barriers will continue to get, get erected and we have to continue to knock them down. Where, where are those barriers in your day-to-day -day practice when you walk into the courtroom? Where, do you, where, what are, the, where are those barriers and how do you bring well, them down? I'm situated in Southeast Georgia. The first barrier is the fact that there's not a diverse bench or bar. I'm one of three African Americans practicing in this in this uh, in this area uh, of more than a hundred thousand people, uh, and if there are seventy five African American lawyers outside uh, of Macon or below Macon, I'm not aware of them um, who are in the practice of law and not uh, teaching or or something else. And so we just don't have a diverse bench and bar. Uh, oftentimes, I go into the courtroom and the whole apparatus of justice uh, is white. Representation matters, but make no mistake about it, uh, just because a person has the same skin color doesn't mean you're gonna get any better justice. There are uh, law, law reviews and comprehensive studies that come out of uh, the University of North Carolina uh, that, that say that blacks receive less justice, unequal sentences when they're before black judges in the same way that blacks receive less care even when they're treated with treated by black doctors, white supremacy and the notions of it, of, of who deserves what, uh, don't only contaminate the minds of people who adopt whiteness, but the people who, um, for whom whiteness um, is, is an illusion that they'll never reach. And so they try to reach it uh, through 
of the accoutrements of the, and the gathering of things, cars, possessions, accolades. Um, and, and they believe that blacks don't deserve as much either. So representation matters. Also a change of mindset matters. And we have to change the law. We have to change the law to, to make it where a trained police officer who's paid out of the public treasury uh, has to remain calm if we're gonna expect that a teenager um, who may have been, uh, uh, may have seen the trauma of everything that's happened to every other black man that he's witnessed on TV, that he has to remain calm and with a gun pointed in his face. Uh, we've got to change the law to where it, where, to where black lives matter as it relates to, to what the law uh, uh, sanctions as burdens um, uh, to it. And, and Brother Pope, we don't know Francis Johnson's trouble, right? I mean, mm -hmm. where he sits. Uh, Atlanta lawyers, we don't even know his troubles. You know, this we, we've got a whole different um, ecosystem to deal. He's dealing, you know, where where all of this has been a positive change in the in the atmosphere where we can get police arrested in his area of Georgia, it has had the opposite of effect. There has been a backlash. And so what we have to understand is that um, white supremacy, like any organism, it contorts itself to try to maintain its existence. And so while it here in an Atlanta metro area, it may seem as though it's receding in other areas, is bubbling up and being even more intense in its application and how it impacts the lives of, of black people. Um, and, and that's a challenge. And I think, uh, again, I, I just want us to continue to, we have to expand our imagination, what we thought was possible a month ago. Mm. We got to write that. Uh, we got to say, all right, people, what do y'all think is possible? And then let's, let's, let's dare Let's dare to imagine with our young people what's possible. The things that, that we coaxed and coaxed them out of, we say, oh, no, that's not, that's not a reality, right? You think about the, the teacher that Malcolm X, that, that taught Malcolm X in the eighth grade and told Malcolm X, you know, be a carpenter, Malcolm. You know, that's more, that's the reality that, that we have to, to deal with and expand imagination and not dare, not dare handcuff or limit our young people in understanding what's possible for our community. So, man, I'm glad that I could be a part of this important Brothers in the Law conversation. We're on the way out here to um, this sacred space uh, that used to be a Wendy's, but now is a strive for black resistance where we're trying Brooks' life was taken. Um, so we're going out with some witnesses so that they can give their accounting to community as to what happened, because we have to continue to, to, to dramatize the reality of what white supremacy is, that it's not a word, it is a system, and the system produces consequences, and those are broken minds, black minds, black bodies, and black spirits, but mm. we know we can rebuild them all, because everything is possible in this moment for us as black people. Thank you, brothers, and I know y'all gonna keep going, Depot, thank you, man. This is a beautiful, um, and obviously to my, my comrades in the struggle, um, 
hey, we will win without a doubt. That's right. That's right. That's well right. said, Molly, thank you so much for joining us on this. To, to borrow the words of Adam Clayton Powell, keep the faith, baby. That's right. <laughs> and Derek, the good news is that even as it contorts, right, we still have a governor who went on TV yesterday and said, hey, we support the police, right? Right. I mean, what that was outrageous yesterday, this notion that the governor is going to go on TV and say, well, we back the blue. Clearly pushing back against the notion that these police officers have done something wrong. Uh, and so I saw that as just more evidence of overt white supremacy. Mm, we, that's right. He's not even trying to hide. He's, al he's already kept a million black folks from voting, people of color from voting, right? He's, al he's already done that. And mm -hmm. so now he is out here saying, well, you know, I don't know what happened in that case, but we, we backed the blue, um, which is just one of the most white supremacist acts I've seen lately. Mm. Right. You know, Derek, you know, when you think about, you think about it, um, whiteness requires um, so many folks to, to engage in a sort of mental uh, gymnastics um, in order to, to sign up. And it is recruiting every day. It's just not recruiting black people. So if the same people who consider themselves white today could roll back the tape to 1968, April the 4th, when Dr. King is shot and killed by white supremacy on the, on the balcony of the Rain Motel, then white people, as defined then, would have already been a minority. You can go back through history and read the signs. No Polish, no blacks, no dogs, no Jews, no blacks, no dogs, no Italians, no blacks, no dogs. I mean, down to the list. America's narrative uh, is a false one. The myth of America is that even the first so-called white people came to this country running from oppression. And so I often hear my so-called not uh, white, or what, what I normally say, my non-black friends say, I know I could never understand what you've gone through. Yeah, yes, you can. Mm. You claim that all of you came here looking for a better way of life, looking, looking for opportunity to not be judged by your, uh, your ethnicity if you're Irish, to not be judged by your religion if you came over here as a Quaker, to not be judged by, I mean, going down the list, everything that people claim that they're fighting for in this moment. You claim you came from all parts of the world to America looking for. Well, let America be America finally. And stop this notion that you don't know what oppression is. Mm. You do. You simply want to ignore it because you are privileged now that you are in this country to find yourself with the haves. And if the only way that people in this country um, uh, can say, and, and suggesting that they suggest I'm, I'm, I am powerless to do something about it. Liberate yourselves. Trust me, we will liberate ourselves. But you will either learn to share power or we will die fighting over it. Because we are done uh, resolving that, uh, that this is just the way it is. The fact of the matter is, white supremacy as a, as a philosophy uh, of politics, who gets what, when, where, and how, as Harold Leswell defined it, is not that old in the history of humankind. It has not always been this way, and it will not always be this way. And I believe that this is a generation uh, that will see it dead.
you touch upon an interesting phrase when you talk about power. That's exactly where this is, and that's what this has always been about. It's a power arrangement set up on a racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's how to define, to acquire, to achieve, mm-hmm. to preserve, and to deny power. But it's not, it's not even based on race because race itself is really a fiction in terms of these classifications. Mm-hmm. And at some point it becomes absurd. You remember in Charlottesville, you know, where the sort of nouveau white uh, European Jews who, who now been vested with whiteness um, as well, that Jews would have never been able to consider themselves white. Uh, for example, when the temple was bombed uh, in Atlanta uh, or again in 1968, but you get this strange uh, juxtaposition of uh, sort of the real white folks looking back at the Jews saying Jews will not replace us. And, and, and Jews are scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, I thought we were white too. <laughs> and so this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And in the same way that we see the census and every instrument of government, every institution is gearing up to now try to convert a whole new group of people to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And that is with Latinos. You look at the census question, no two census, uh, since we began collecting the census, uh, has ever used the same racial classification at all. It is always about ex- expanding the definition of whiteness and controlling uh, with rigidity what it means to be black. That's from the official census. That's why there are four ways that you can be Latino and also be white. And only one way you can be Latino and be black on the census this time, because they are the next group to be invited into whiteness. The, the agreement you have to make if you're invited in whiteness is that you've got to suppress everybody else. Mm. And everybody else is just us. Just mm-hmm. us. Well, and, and so the other part of this supremacy thing, right, is, you know, Republicans and conservatives want to talk about judges who don't make law, right? Mm. Judges, we don't we don't want to. But everybody who can read an opinion knows that qualified immunity came right from the judges, the judicial system. It came right there. There was never a statute. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was made up to protect those who are enforcing order, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so as has been said already, you're right, white supremacy just it moves, it's slick, it, it goes back and forth, it ebbs and flows. And so, but, but I, I believe that these, I think this generation now is, is as they like to say, nah. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. So these are, these are uh, you know, I know Francis talks about uh, a prophetic word, prophetic vision, seeing those things that aren't, aren't in front of you right now. I am hoping that that's what we see in this mm. imagination, how, you know, stuff that we didn't think was possible is now coming to fruition. Mm. And I just want to do all I can to assist, uh, mm. do what I can to assist these young people uh, and, folks of, and, and, and folks of goodwill who want to be good allies, right? That's you know, right. Folks who want to be good allies, um, I understand, unfortunately, that's part of the job, right? <laughs> so, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm 
cautiously excited about moving forward in a way that is different than what it has been. And in every, in every sphere of influence, in every profession, in every walk of life, there's work to be done. I'm very proud, uh, Gary and I uh, witnessed the state bar in its annual meeting adopting the program of the 58th state president, Don Jones, who is the only, is only the second African-American to lead our bar in Georgia. Um, second black female as well, black women lead. Um, she is a nurse uh, as well as a lawyer. Uh, and uh, I think call for such a time is now to help us heal um, and, and to particularly heal through the law as it is in focus. Um, and so the bar approved a part of her program that adopted a, a standing committee, uh, which will look at um, bias and um, discrimination uh, and, and, and racism within our system and make recommendations across the board in Georgia uh, for how, how the legal system can, can improve. That's a powerful declaration on the first day of her tenure. Uh, and uh, and overwhelming support uh, from the bar to get it done. Of course, we've got to make it matter uh, through making sure that the work it does is truly aimed at getting to the hearts of the problem. But not just in the law, doctors have got to do the same thing within their profession uh, and across the board in every aspect of life, we've got to root up anti-blackness wherever it exists. And until that day comes, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. That's, that's the statement that comes from Ella Baker and her organizing tradition. That's the statement that comes back from an older tradition, the Ibu tradition, right here in Georgia, in the St. Simon Sound, who say before they'll be slaves, they'll be buried in their graves, and they drown themselves in that watery, and that watery mist right outside of Darien, Georgia. Because they knew, like we all knew, that, like we all know deep within, that the natural state of man is not to be dominated by someone else. Mm. And that's what this is about. Not Dusty Parchment uh, ratified uh, in 1787, we call it a constitution, or even an earlier document that expressed the ambitions of people wanting to be free, even if it meant violently obtaining their freedom, the Declaration of Independence. But this goes back to something more than that, that we were created to be free and we are not. And so until we are free, uh, not some of us, until all of us are free, uh, we can't rest. Brothers, I want to thank you so much for this conversation, Francis, especially those last comments. The law can function as a healing apparatus. Mm. Um, as far as I am concerned, I have not been shy about telling everybody that I think that there is a undeniable interrelatedness between the profession of law and the profession of faith. Oh, yes. Gary, as you mentioned, relying on your faith to navigate through this particular moment, um, the law can be ministerial, small m, as much as it is majesty. Mm. The law can be pastoral, small p, as much as it is procedural. Mm. And you gentlemen, you brothers, intuitively get that. And uh, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that you took the time to join us. I am proud to know you. And thank you for the work that you are doing, that you will do, you will continue to do. And 
as Mowley said, we've been right all along. That can carry us through these, through the how contorted the adversary will make itself. That will sustain us through the struggle that will continue on the way to the fact that victory is certain. Mm. That will provide nourishment for us, as you said, Francis, for such a time as this. Such a time as this. And I do appreciate you being here to show and share with others how the law and lawyers can be spiritual healers in this very dark, but there is a brighter day coming moment. Brothers, thank you so much. God Absolutely. bless each of you. Thank, thank you for your work you're doing with the Ark of Justice. Uh, on behalf of Francis, you just gave him like four sermons, man. Yes, you uh, did. So, <laughs> you gave him like four or five sermons, so you're making his life a little easier because, I mean, all those will preach, right? All of that will preach. All of that will preach. But Derek, thank you for what you're doing with the Ark of Justice. We need brothers who are letting people know what history means, right, and, and how we're part of history. History is not something that just happened. We are making history for down the road, and we're, we're, we're making it happen. So thank you for what you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. James Weldon Johnson said it best, the, you know, nothing is fixed forever. The earth is always shifting. Light is always changing, and generations do not cease to be born because and we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses they have. What we are doing right now is we are engaged in what I call witness preparation. It's their time to take the stand for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And what we're doing is giving them great witness preparation. And you brothers are experts at witness preparation. Thank you so much. This won't be the last time that we have conversations like this. On the next installment of Brothers in Law, we'll be joined by lawyers who themselves used to be police officers. As we move toward a more just society, that is a perspective worth hearing. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in for the next installment of Brothers in Law, a special conversation on race and justice from Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.